Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and good morning, mammal friend. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I couldn't help but notice that you are horny for that urban planner. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of complex adaptive systems and uniformitarianism. Nice. Today we'll be talking about Anna Lee Newitz's The, the Terraformers. Terraformers. And I know we're doing Jupiter Ascending next. And then I, we're doing... I believe the San Junipero episode of yes, Black Yes, that's Mirror. right. Yes. We're doing a, a, a retro Black Mirror episode yes. mm -hmm. in celebration of the new season dropping mm -hmm. on Netflix, which I've heard is very good, yeah. as usual. After that, things get a little hazy. We're, it's dependent on a few things. We'll, but, but you know, we're, we've, we've got some plans. We're going to be doing... We have plans. We'll be doing the entire oh, Riddick plans. trilogy at some point for hot sci-fi summer. Just all Riddick all the time. Everywhere Riddick all at once. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be ridiculous. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can call it ridiculousness. There you I go. like that. Yes. All right, Dan, what do people need to know about supporting the show? Okay, so we are in a structure here where what we do is we seek patrons out. So, <gasps> you know, if you want to become a patron, go to We're avoiding capitalism. Yes. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, if you go to patreon.com slash space the nation, you can potentially choose to become a patron for as little as $3 a month. And in return for doing that, you get all sorts of goodies. You get early access to podcasts. You get access to our monthly AUAs. You get to participate in the world's most awesome discord in which various conversations are bandied about, suggestions often come up. And indeed, in many of our podcasts, we will answer questions plucked from the discord. All right, Dan, thanks. Now let me introduce a very special guest and therefore a very special version of our show. We've only done one other interview for this incarnation of the show. That is correct, yes. Now it happens to be with this person's partner, but I want to... Listeners, if you can see my face right now, you'll know why Anna is laughing. Dan didn't know that. I did apparently. not know that. I knew that I knew that Charlie Jane Anders and, and Annalie Newitz were were close. I did not quite know they were that close. So okay. Good to know. Right. We are going to expand our horizons beyond a single household in terms of interviews. Yes. But we figured we'd exhaust this household first. That seems like the now, I believe they also have some pets. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, considering the book we're reading, we might not be done. We got to have to check that. their in-ass ratings, obviously. But like once we do yes. that, we'll, we'll potentially talk. <laughs> the them. least important thing about our guest, Annalie Newitz, is that I went to grad school with them. <laughs> and that is how I know them. Now, our listeners may know them as the editor and progenitor, uh, primogenitor, primogenitor. No, no. I think it's progenitor, progenitor. I think I want to say. Progenitor. Yeah. All right. I nailed uniformitarianism. <laughs> Damn yes. it. But the important thing anyway, is- Anyway, she founded I <laughs> Yes, which is an awesome, awesome website. Was, was. Was an awesome website, yes. So they were also connected to me via Nick Denton. Interesting. Ah, Our careers okay. have kind of paralleled. Mm -hmm. They're also the author of Autonomous, which won the Lambda Literary Award, and the author of a best-selling nonfiction book 
Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. And as I said, they are our guests this week to discuss The Terraformers, their latest book. Dan, so your turn. We're not going to do a full full breakdown. No, no. But- I'm just going to give you a proceed of The Terraformers. And the best way to put it is that it's world building, literally and figuratively. <laughs> it is about a corporation called Verdance that is trying to build a planet for, you know, people who want to buy a plot in the good old fashioned Pleistocene age. And they're doing so in a world where people are not really born so much as decanted. And by the way, people is a category that includes sentient animals and bots. So the novel spans more than a millennia as members of the ERT, the Environmental Rescue Team, really are trying to do a lot of things. They're trying to fight the corporate power. They're trying to pursue eco-sustainability. And they are trying to hook up in super sexy ways, Anna. (laughs) And we wind up talking about perhaps more than people would expect us to. I don't think Anna Lee- come across as especially horny people. (laughs) I'm not going to judge our listeners. I'm not going to judge how we come across. No, I meant us. I don't think we come across as especially horny, but we spent a lot of time on this. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I can only speak for myself. As I've said, it's been a while. So I don't know. <laughs> there's nothing I can say at this point. That no, there's not. Yeah. I'm just making it a running joke. Yeah. Uh, when it stops being a running joke, people can celebrate for <laughs> me. There you go. <laughs> I am on the apps now, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> just I have some I have some ideas for men who are on the apps. Oh, yeah. And men, some, I, you're gonna, you should listen. That's the only answer. Some suggestions. Yeah. We'll just do. I, we'll add that I to am, another show. Exactly. I am 100 percent with Anna Marie on this. Is all I will say on that. One. There's some bad, bad profiles on yeah. those apps, yeah, yeah, Dan. Yeah, yeah. I know. Some really good profiles. Anyway, enough about horniness. <laughs> <laughs> Let us get on with the interview. Here is our interview with Annalie Newitz. Hi, Annalie. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. I don't think I've ever called it a program before, but welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for whatever you want to call it. The event, (laughs) the the digital event. Whatever it is, it's clearly a plural noun, I think is the important point. It is a digital event because it celebrates our like 30th anniversary, basically. Right. Yeah, it's true. I think the last yeah. time we saw each other was in the the 90s, maybe, or the early aughts. Oh, wow. So, it was. Yeah. Although I followed your career Same. and was very excited to see your success as a novelist. I'm very excited to see you not be an academic, just be totally Hey. Honest. Yeah. I, I think back, <laughs> back at you. A lot of, I feel like a lot of my fiction has just been like working out my feelings about academia. And uh, I think that's the right place for it. Like not actually in academia, just do it in fiction have those feelings. Just, but I'm, no offense to Dan. I was say, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I cited Annalise's work in my my theories of international politics and zombies book. So like it was a professional site. Awesome. Yeah. That that makes me very happy. Okay. I have I have no beef with academia. In fact, yeah. I'm actually kind of professionally obsessed with academia as a science <laughs> journalist, but I'm glad that my career is is kind of I, I call myself a para academic. You know, I'm kind of a, an epiphenomenon. Like that. That's good. I like that. Yes. I like that. <laughs> Okay, we'll get back to the actual first question I have for you, which is your books have covered a lot of different kinds of scientific problems. This is your first one to deal with. Actually, so why don't you go through all the different scientific questions 
that you've tackled in your fiction first? Like you'd say, Autonomous is about a drug that changes people. Yeah, Autonomous is about a, a drug that changes people's brains to help make them more productive, but mm. it's also about robot consciousness. So it's it's really a story about both artificial and biological brains, if, if you will. And my second novel, Future of Another Timeline, is really about history. I do use the device of time travel, which is not scientific. And I was sad to discover when I talked to a couple of physicists that there's no way time travel is ever really going to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just a literary device. But the the work is really thinking through how do you change history? Is it great men who change history? Or is it collective action? And the characters are experimenting with that as they move around the timeline and try to make sure that abortion remains legal in their present day, Hmm. which at the time I wrote it, abortion was (laughs) legal in the United States, in all the states. And I have been feeling really guilty about calling into being a timeline where it's not. So that sucks. And in the terraformers- I think there were a lot of other people trying to call it into being for what it's- No, 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 no. No, no, everyone blames Anna Lee for this. Let's be very clear about that. I've actually, (laughs) I've gotten quite a bit of blame and I was like, really? know about the multi-decade long Wait, movement. Wait, seriously? To... <laughs> that's, that's disturbing that you've actually gotten Not like in a serious, but like in the way that, I feel like in the science fiction world, it's it kind of considered a compliment if you predict something, yeah. even if it's a terrible thing and people right. like, you caused that. And it's like, I just, I just paid attention to the political moment. And, huh. you know, I was actually finishing that novel during the Kavanaugh hearings. And it's a very gory novel. It involves a lot of murdering of incels and, and other undesirable men. And as, as Kavanaugh was testifying, I was like, I'll just throw in another murder. Just, you know, just an extra one. Just for fun. You know, so that was that was inspirational, I, I guess I would say. Yeah. Well, speaking so, of inspirations, that's sort of the, the turn I wanted to make here, which is that, so it's called The Terraformers, mm-hmm. but I may be so bold. It has some terraforming in it, but that's, to me, not what it's really about. It seems like it's, it has also a lot of urban planning, which I would love to talk to you about as well. Yeah. But you we might save that as a little bit of a sidebar for people who don't find that fascinating. <laughs> but I think what everyone would find fa- fascinating is it's a really deep dive into personhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think and, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, <laughs> sorry. I was like, I was going to let you continue. <laughs> Well, I think that's right. And so let me look. Dan, yeah, I wanted to add. So like, it's always this thing I want to set you up for. Like in some ways, the the, the essence of this book or the, the this book starts with something that you reference a lot, which is called the Great Bargain, I think, which is this sort of farm revolution where, and, and you talk about it, but there wasn't actually a, a ton of backstory about it. And I think Anna and I were both curious. So like, it's this thing where basically it's decided that animals are going to have personhood as well as humans, Correct. Yeah, so the there is a there's deep backstory in the novel, which is kind of it's supposed to be such ancient history right. that nobody ever gives you an info dump about yeah. it because I always get annoyed when in a science fiction story you have that as you know Bob moment where someone's <laughs> like, Well, as you know, on Vulcan, you guys go through something called Ponfar, and Spock is why, yes, tell me about my own culture and my own biological functioning. So yeah, so in the Terraformers it's set 60,000 years in the future. And so in their very distant past, like probably you know 50,000 years before, there's been uh, something like a, an updated version of the Green Revolution. The planet Earth has gone through horrific climate change. There's food shortages. There's sea level rise. And a group of 
genetic engineers and environmental scientists have figured out a way to genetically modify non-human animals to have human equivalent intelligence. And this is a point in human history. Again, it's very far in the past. We just hear references here and there. But this is also a period when robots and other kinds of uh, artificial beings also have human equivalent intelligence. So there's already human equivalent robots wandering around. And so in order to rebuild the agricultural system on Earth, this group decides that they can't just make decisions on behalf of the natural world anymore, that they need to invite other creatures, other life forms to the table to bargain with them about how to use the land. And so that's how we get a civilization that's built not just on the idea of human personhood, but also that moose can be people, cats can be people, cows can be people. And what I imagined they would have done is that first, the animals that we've domesticated would be brought to the table. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you would have land planners asking cows, how would you like this this farm to be run or asking pigs, like what would actually be an ideal way for us to interact with you guys? And from there, they're able to rebuild Earth's ecosystems. And then that group that forms this great bargain, uh, this bargain with other non-human life forms, they become part of a an organization called the Environmental Rescue Team, ERT, which right. is yeah, the ERT and our, most of the characters in the novel are part of the ERT. And they're this ancient order of engineers and first responders whose entire job is to keep ecosystems in balance. And whether those ecosystems are being put out of balance by a political uprising that causes lots of refugees and damage to the environment, or whether it's just there's a trophic cascade, there's just too many predators in the environment and they have to figure out how to fix that, they're there. So they're kind of the Lassie's rescue rangers of the future. <laughs> so ter- but terraforming is kind of the backdrop for everything. And in your acknowledgments, you do acknowledge the grandmaster of all terraforming novels, Kim Stanley Robinson. And you say that you promised you would name a character, Kim, and you did. Yes. I'm wondering if there's other terraforming books specifically that influenced you, because this one, for one thing, I appreciated the grand scale oh, that yeah. you're on here. Yes. Like the tens of thousands of years right. that pass. Does it, do, were you bothered by books that do it in a short amount of time? So you specifically went for a long amount of time? Like, what was your thinking about classical terraforming writing versus what you did? Yeah, no, I definitely obviously was, was thinking about the Red Mars series. And I also was really influenced by Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis series, which I think is now sometimes marketed as Lilith's Brood. And that's about aliens who come to Earth and convert Earth into a giant spaceship over a period of many generations. So it's pretty radical terraforming, but most most humans on Earth are dead because they've nuked themselves. So there's not much to lose in terms of humanity. Anyway, spoilers for a very old series. And uh, (laughs) so but that the thing that's really delightful about Octavia Butler's vision is that she really does see the entire environment as being part of this transformation. It's not just about people. It's about all of the other creatures and non-humans in the environment. I, in terms of the timescale, I always start my fiction writing process by interviewing scientists and trying to work within at least our best 
guesses to what would be realistic based on what scientists think. So I interviewed a scientist at the University of Washington named David Catling, who was very patient with me, and he studies early atmosphere. And so I was like, look, if I wanted to build an Earth's atmosphere and I had hyper technology, just imagine yeah. like hand waving tooth fairy stuff, what would be the minimal minimum amount of time we would need to spin up an atmosphere like what we have on Earth. And he said, probably 10,000 years. So that was why I felt like it's also kind of like it's arbitrary. And I'm and it's sort of a question of like, where do you get your arbitrary number from? Do you just make it up? Do you call a scientist and let them give you an arbitrary number? And so I always prefer just to, to default. to like, well, a scientist told me that was realistic. Well, speaking of like, the arbitrariness of we decide what's realistic and not. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I I wanted to ask you what your what is your favorite bit that's the based in real ish science? Like, what's the thing that you're able to pull out and that you can point to and be like, this might actually, or at least if not actually happen, then it has some scientific backing behind it. And then, what's your favorite bit that's just like hand wave magic? I don't know. Like, that's a very is. that's a very good question. So. Actually, the part that I like that I think is most realistic is that the planet is covered in sensors that are made of paper and they're so they're biodegradable. In fact, all of their networking technology is biodegradable. And the idea of paper sensors in an environment that you could use to assess the health of your ecosystem, that's something that's real. There I talked to a researcher who's working on making sensors made out of paper mm-hmm. and of course Currently, in the world of agriculture, one of the really big new ways, big new products coming from companies like Caterpillar is smart farming, where you have sensors throughout your fields that can tell you things about, you know, the moisture of the soil, the acidic nature of the soil. Is there too much nitrogen, not enough nitrogen? And so that to me was very realistic that you could be looking in a very granular way at how healthy your ecosystems were and also what was just in your ecosystem. Like, is, is there a new creature that's come in? You know, what are they doing? That kind of stuff. So that was very fun and, re- and realistic. I then took some extreme liberties uh, as I built all of the creatures in the ecosystem. The idea that you could have a flying moose <laughs> who can text the, from the his flying brain. stuff probably write that. The flying stuff was my tooth fairy <laughs> part of the story. Yeah, where they it's have just anti-grav this, mesh, Annalie. Yeah, it's actually it's relatively straightforward. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, you know. it's, a, it's anti-gravity mesh. They build it into their bodies. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I, okay. it, was the, I mean, it was the pandemic. I, I look, needed... That was- Flying and moves. my suspicion was that was Whistle's opening line to Midnight anyway. So, you know, that works perfectly well. <laughs> yeah, Dan's yeah. favorite storyline is the Whistle Midnight storyline. Oh, yeah. We almost had a fight about it. <laughs> it's so good, right? It's really good. Oh, I it love their wonderful. I love their is, relationship yes. so much. It is wonderful. I just think that there are other compelling relationships as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I Me just too. don't know if I'd go with favorite. But since we started talking about the moose... <laughs> First, I have sort of a technical question, I guess, which is why are moose the mounts and and not horses? Like you don't have horses. I'm just curious. I have often asked myself that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, moose I are have, more fun. And also it's more fun to say moose for plural. I So 
Again, this was a book that I wrote during the pandemic, and there were certain concessions that I just gave myself to as self-soothing. And I have always wanted to ride a moose. I've always (laughs) wanted to pet a moose. I... I read a, a, a scientific article at one point. Well, perhaps not very scientific. It was in a popular science publication about how moose noses are the softest in the <laughs> mammal world. I don't know how you measure softness of nose, but it seemed right to me. Like I, I had a gut feeling like that was That's real. also an awesome research Their noses article. Just look soft. It's just going to put that out there. Sure. Softest nose. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Softest nose. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, it is a really big question. Why aren't there any horses? Because like I said, it would make sense given the great bargain Mm. being with animals that were domesticated, that there would be a lot of horses involved. And I just, I felt like at a certain point, if I brought in horses, it would, they would need their own whole backstory the way the dogs dogs have. Mm. Because I really build out like how the dogs We're going to talk about dogs. I'm glad that yeah, yeah, and my my editor is a dog person. She has two dogs, and she was a little bit disturbed by the dog situation. She's like, "Are you saying my dogs hate me?" And I was like, "No." Annalie, we were we were we both real. had the same reaction. We was like, "Wait, what? No, the dogs love us. I don't understand. What are you talking about?" Yeah. Anyway, so I felt like yeah, bringing in the horses would have meant having like, how do the horses feel about the fact that they were these draft animals for so long and were used even more in a more cruel way than dogs have been. So I kind of was just, I said, well, I'll just, we'll assume there's horses out there. They're doing their own horse thing. Like maybe they don't even want to be around humans at all. Like they Horse planet. I love it. Horse Horse planet. planet. That's a good sequel. I hope someone writes some fic about the horse planet (laughs) in this, in this world, or maybe even a whole horse solar system, you know? And there's Pegai, Pegasuses. And exactly. unicorns in this horse planet because I there's mean, flight they can fly, yeah. And there's body modification, so yeah. Sound, uh, you'd have to really work hard to keep tourists. Away. So basically, rainbows park. That is yeah. a good novel. That's a good novel. <laughs> I mean, and the, I mean, the, the company that's developing the planet in Terraformers is an interstellar real estate corporation, and they do these boutique projects. I could easily see Verdance, the company, being like, "Oh yeah, we're going to make a unicorn in Pegasus Planet." Everybody's going to bring their kids. It's going to be incredibly lucrative. Go. So yeah, so I chose Moose because I love them. And also because, as you may have noticed, this novel is full of references to Saskatchewan and Canada. So, you know, you got to have a Moose. Um, <laughs> it's it's the Canadian way. Are you Canadian, Natalie? No, I just have a lot of family. I didn't grow up in, okay. in Canada, but I have a lot of family in Fair Canada, enough. especially in Saskatchewan. Oh. So. Dan, do you want to talk about dog stuff in particular? So I have a dog adjacent question, but I imagine Annalise has gotten or going to get a ton of questions about the dog backstory. Right. So I, th- I think I'm going to set you up for an easy answer here, which is the in the book, the, the basically the idea is that the dogs keep to themselves and stay as far away from the Homo sapiens as possible because they viewed their time with Homo sapiens as slavery, which not going to lie, that was a little bit jarring. But, you know, so like, is that, are you trying to tell all of us in the current world that we are slave owners of pets? I... Wow, Dan, you said easy answer. I don't <laughs> I know. know. So it's, it's interesting because, I mean, there are some parts of the book where I am really trying to have a pretty clear political message. Yeah. And the political message of the book is 
is very much about how enslavement comes in many forms mm -hmm. and that even if we don't call it slavery, it's still going on and that we need to realize that, in fact, our present day world is full of enslavement. Um, it's full of people who are unable to move to a new country or to a new city. You know, they're, they're unable to uh, have autonomy over where they work or how they work or the conditions of their lives. And so, you know, that's a huge concern for me. I decided with the dogs to kind of play with that idea a little bit. And it was really my attempt to do a table flip and to say, yeah, you know, you think that dogs are super in love with you, but maybe this is just conditioning. Right. You know, maybe this is maybe that if the dogs had the capacity to actually talk back to, to us in a way that we yeah. understood, yeah, that maybe they would be saying like, hey, guys, like, we'd really rather have a more equal relationship. And like, because of the fact that we can't, we're just having to act like we love you uh, in order to get food from you and get your attention and stuff like that. So, but also, I, I'm a cat person. So. Oh, I have, I have, I, I, I'm bipetual. Uh -huh. uh, and I have a, I, my prediction is cats are fine with it. Cats are like, no, you work for us, right? Like, yeah. What do you mean domesticated? <laughs> like, I think I think that that's right. And I think that's probably why that was why I felt like cats would be they would make the transition into the great bargain with great aplomb. You know, yeah. they'd be like, yep, this has always been the way it is. But at least now you can understand this. Whereas <laughs> yeah. I feel like dogs would be like, OK, now we can talk to you. We're looking back at like 30,000 years of history with Homo sapiens. And boy, we really didn't make out very well. Like we were abused, we were eaten, we were, you know, given the shittiest jobs, and made to go live in the backyard in like a substandard house. And we're just really annoyed about that. But who knows, you know, like, we only meet the dogs that are on this planet, there might be dogs elsewhere who are like, dog much planet. more integrated dog planet, dog, dog planet, or just like, maybe, you know, like, maybe on this planet, there's a group of like radical separatist dogs. And that's the main dogs that we meet. I mean, <laughs> Dogs are as diverse as people politically, right? So there's got to be dogs who are like... <laughs> well, one who, would assume standard distribution. Yeah. Right. So, so there's got to be groups of dogs who are like, no, no, that was fine. We domesticated people. They domesticated us. We had a great relationship. And now, like, we do business with homo sapiens all the time. Well, you've brought up one of my main questions, which is, like, the parts of the book that are direct commentary <clears throat> on what's going on now well all of science fiction is about what's going on now but i guess sure. one one of my kind of top line questions about the personhood of animals i i'm getting from a jane friend of mine because i was telling her about the book and about what i thought were metaphors for personhood and she stopped me and she said what if they're not metaphors like what if this is actually just about animals mm. can we can we have a can you have a piece of fiction that's about animals as people and it's not a metaphor. What do you think? I think that's right. I'm so glad that your friend picked that up because one of the things that has always irked me in stories that are about what often get called uplifted animals, so non-human animals who are given human equivalent intelligence, mm -hmm. oftentimes the animals in those stories are given really stereotyped attributes like You'll have a cat person who's like 
really growly all the time and is like always getting into fights and you'll have like a rabbit person who's always very timid or like a dolphin person who keeps wanting to go swimming or whatever, you know, it's like, and what I really wanted to do with these non-human animals is have them have all kinds of personalities and like they don't all act in a stereotyped way. You know, there's one moose who's kind of an intellectual, you know, there's one moose who's much more uh, mellow and freewheeling and they aren't, you know, constantly obsessed with just grazing or migrating (laughs) or whatever a stereotypical moose behavior would be. They do like swimming uh, because moose do love to swim, but so does everybody. So I really, I wanted to imagine a future where this great bargain has allowed homo sapiens to maybe decenter ourselves mm-hmm. and to think of ourselves truly as part of an ecosystem of many life forms who all have equal you know rights to enter into agreements with each other you know they all can kind of uh, have access to how to run their society how to manage the land in a best case scenario but of course in the terraformers we see kind of the worst case scenario where this is a privately owned planet that's run by a corporation. And so the rights of all of the people are abrogated by the fact that they're enslaved, (laughs) the fact that they have no choice about where they can live. They have to stay on the planet. Um, So it's, it's a, it's a marginal kind of place within this larger civilization. And, Let's talk more about the animals and personhood because I could go forever. There's a tension to me a little bit in the book because there's this idea of the grand bargain and I don't know what to call the animals that are people to distinguish them from, to say, I don't want to say uplifted, you're right, because that actually is problematic for what it's I think is a little bit of tension. problematic. I really <laughs> fucking hate that. I've been saying, I say non-human animals just because we're all animals. Okay, non-human but, animals. But we could also or just people. say people. Yeah, you say people a lot. They all the call them yeah. non-human people? Or you can just say no. people, and we assume that people includes lots of creatures that are not homo sapiens, right? True, but I have to ask a question for the imaginative leap that is okay. made. Non-human animals, <laughs> Sorry, then. Non-human animals. <laughs> Terminology is very hard. It is. I anyway. I, I actually do love all the all the things you did here to sort of play with some of that. So there is this little bit of tension because I assume there is something that has to happen for some animals to achieve personhood and others not to. Mm-hmm. Is that a and that's a technological thing that is yeah given to them by animals of all kinds, whoever has that power. First, it was probably just humans, but then obviously that's democratized. But that's the first, that's a step in this process, right? Yeah. So the kind of origin story that we hear about is that there are some homo sapiens and some robots, some artificially intelligent beings. They're not necessarily all robots. uh, And they decide to enter into this great bargain. And the way that they do it is they genetically engineer non-human animals to have the ability to communicate with humans. And that's my question. Yeah. (laughs) Because is it intelligence or is it communication? Because one of the turns in the book, a little bit of spoiler folks, is that you discover that this 
ability to be a person, an ability to think, is not, in fact, an intelligence issue, right? It's That's right. It's communication. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what is so? Is that your stance on what happened with the original animals? Is that it was a communication problem that was solved and not an intelligence problem? I or- think I so I find the idea of intelligence to be incredibly intelligence is problematic so so that was why in this book i was like no i'm not gonna have this idea that we make non-human animals quote-unquote intelligent because i think there's plenty of evidence that lots of creatures on the earth right now are thinking and doing things that clearly show that they have some kind of culture and civilization and intergenerational memory and all the things that we think of as intelligence, you know, even puzzle solving, which is Silicon Valley's favorite way of defining intelligence. Mm. And I wanted to have something more concrete, a way of showing how basically people who have the power to do this genetic engineering, how they've imposed an intelligence hierarchy on all of the creatures around them. And they've chosen to define intelligence as the ability to communicate And then what they do is they build certain life forms with greater or lesser capabilities to communicate. So our main moose, who we fall in love with in the book, or who I fell in love with in writing the book, Whistle, who is the mount. Um, So Whistle has been built to be a class of being called a mount, which means he can only speak in monosyllables, or he can only text in monosyllables, unless he's using a proper name. So he's able to use certain proper names that have lots of syllables and it gives him a lot of pleasure. And there's another class of beings called blessed who are only able to talk about their work. And it makes it very difficult for them to talk about anything else. And they have to come up with all these different workarounds to try to say something that isn't directly related to the labor that they're doing. And then there's people and the people have full access to whatever vocabulary they like. And I liked that idea because it, I mean, it is a very nice metaphor because really a lot of the issues that we've had historically around enslavement as people, as humans in real life, uh, the issues we've had around enslavement or even just about around, you know, warfare have often had to do with one group saying like, well, that other group isn't even capable of talking practically or, or they systematically deprive them of the ability to communicate through writing or through speaking their own language. Or they're constructed as subhuman. They're viewed as subhuman. Yeah, they're viewed as subhuman, but a lot of the ways that they're portrayed as subhuman are imposed. You know, they're cultural. Like they say, oh, well, they don't even speak English, you know, or they can't, you know, or they don't even know how to write, uh, or they don't even have a writing system, at least not one that we recognize. You know, they just use ropes and tie knots in them. How can that possibly (laughs) be some form of writing? Let's just burn it all down. (laughs) Those little pictures. There's just little pictures. They're just little pictures. pictures. And so I think it's it's a nice way of uh, for me it was a it was a good way to nod to the history of how people have dehumanized each other. But also it it was an it was easy to imagine that in the future that might become something that humans would impose that people would impose on each other this this kind of limited form of expression as a way of uh, maintaining their enslavement. I will say that I think that servitude. I will say that I think the creepiest part of the book, I mean this in a flattering way, was the blessings for me was the, even more, even more so than whistle like with, and maybe this is my own prejudice is like, yeah, moose. Okay. I can 
figure it's hard for them to articulate. But the idea of people for whom they can only communicate if they're talking about their work is just utterly chilling. Uh, the idea of human people. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> the ability to talk about their work. Because yeah. that's, yeah. de- that's, that's the trying to decenter humans yeah. right there, mm-hmm. right? Is, is to show, you had, I think, you kind of had to put a blessed that's a human, right. but that's to show us humans what that's like. It forces like, perspective. To even it, if yes. most of the blesseds, it seems like, or not most, but we are first shown blesseds that are non-human animals. I want to talk about one of the dissentering moments that I really appreciated, which is when our heroes come across a dairy farm. <laughs> yeah. So I, with a cow, a person that is a cow, a cow that is a person. Zest. Yeah. Zest, yes. One of my favorite questions, one of my favorite characters. <laughs> Also, not fully a cow, right? Like, it, she's a cyborg a, cow. She's a cyborg she's, cow. Yeah. She's modified herself to have all kinds of cool mm-hmm. properties, and actuators. and she actually speaks too because she has little speakers, mm-hmm. and she doesn't just text. I appreciated two things about that. One is that I think it was very deft of you as a novelist to put that scene pretty far back in the book, mm-hmm. because I think a temptation for someone writing a book that wants to showcase animal non-human animal rights mm-hmm. <laughs> might be tempted to put something barbaric in the front. Mm-hmm. But what I appreciated is by the time we get there, it has a much deeper emotional impact because we've gotten to know zest, mm-hmm. right? It is one of the places I teared up the other place I'm going to say. It it really affected me. Yeah. It's a really upsetting scene. Mm-hmm. It was hard to write. Yeah. My Jane friend who I was talking to about this, when she said, I was, I said she'd like it. She was like, I don't, I hate reading about any kind of animal abuse. And I'm like, well, there's none except, well, <laughs> I was like, there is one. It might not be considered abuse by most people, but you do show. And there is also, it's a, it's a free range dairy farm. Even mm-hmm. it's, it's, not a factory farm where again, like that's the kind of torture porn that a lot of people rely on to, to illustrate how badly animals are treated. So I appreciated that. I thought that was very deft. And then I also appreciated that we get an illustration of human person saviorism, I guess uh-huh. you could call it, which is when one of the hominids is like, we have to do something. This is terrible. And Zest is like, well, you know, I need to process this. I need to think about it. And the, is it Sulfur that has this Uh revelation? Yeah. Sulfur thinks, well, how would I feel if a cow told me how to rescue them, rescue myself? Right. Yeah. So I appreciated that a lot. Yeah. No, and I really wanted to avoid doing the Okja kind of representation, um, which I love the movie Okja. Actually, it's it's really it's one of many Bong Joon Ho joints that I think are fantastic. But that's that's very much about the abattoir, right? Like the horror of like this massive farm full of genetically engineered animals who are being just you know, they're treated like meat even before they're dead. You know, there's like a scene where they take a sample from one of the creature's bodies and cook it up in front of the creature. And it's like, 
just, I mean, it's very effective. It's super sad. You really do identify with the, with the non-human animals, but yeah, I wanted, I mean, this is a far future where they're not doing that kind of overt torture anymore of non-human animals. So it's all in the realm of, you might even call it microaggressions because (laughs) A dairy farm, I mean, as you said, these are cows who are roaming free. There is a kind of, there is a fence around the area that they're in. They can't go beyond a certain point, but they have lots of land. You know, they're not squished up into a little cage. They are not being herded. They're just eating grass and hanging out. But Zest, who is, you know, a person and a cow, is disturbed because she's never met a cow who wasn't a person. Mm. And these are cows who are built to be, uh, the joke in the book is this ongoing obsession with Pleistocene <laughs> authenticity. So these are authentic Pleistocene cows. These are artisanal so they cows. They're artisanal <laughs> Pleistocene cows who cannot text, who seem to be built like cows are built in our world today, which is to say they don't have an ability to communicate and we don't know what they're thinking. We don't have any way to find out what they're thinking. So I actually spent a bit of time when I was working on Zest's character, reading articles in um, agriculture journals about how to read the facial expressions of cows. And it turns out that, of course, farmers have, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years been trying to figure out, like, if a cow is sick based on how the cow is acting. And so there is a lot of information about the cow's emotional state, like if their skin becomes really tight on their face, like almost like they're clenching their jaw, that's a sign that they're in pain. So there's certain scenes where Zest, we, I talk about how her face like looks like more skeletal because she's upset about something. And I was like, yeah, I mean, even though we pretend like we don't really know what animals are thinking, we also have amassed an amazing body of literature about how to tell what they're feeling. <laughs> And I wonder about the the decentering of the humans. Is how how portable do you think that metaphor is when Sulfur realizes that they can't s- step in on on Zest's behalf? Like, is that a white saviorism? Is that a good parallel? Is it something that I should even be thinking about? Because as my Jane friend pointed out, like, why can't we just have it be about animals? How portable did you mean it to be? How portable do you think it is? I think you can acknowledge that this is a story about non-human animals and still also understand that there are parallels within the human world. And that's really what I hope is that people can not view the whole thing as some kind of allegory and say like, actually, yeah, this is about a future where we acknowledge the humanity or the personhood of of non-humans. But at the same time, we can look at the way we've treated each other and imaginatively project how that might con- that dynamic might continue if we broadened our definition of personhood. That means that we're also going to broaden our horizon of dehumanization, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, as soon as, I mean, if you look at Homo sapiens, one of our main ways that we acknowledge the personhood of another being is in, in a sense by calling them an adversary and dehumanizing them. That's like one of our big tricks that we like to do. And it's one of our obviously huge failure modes. But I think that it seems inevitable that even if we, if most of us were acknowledging the, the personhood of a moose, there'd always be people who were like, no, nah, they're animals. Like, treat them like a mount. Don't let them talk. They can't talk anyway. If they talked, what they would say would be stupid. 
You know, those are all the kinds of things I imagine the bad guys saying to themselves. I want to let Dan ask a question, but I do at some point have to tell you about a dream I had where I could talk to my cat <laughs> and what the cat said. <laughs> and I do believe it's a true dream. I believe that I was in communication with my cat. <laughs> awesome. And I guess I'll just say it. He said one thing. I like to have my butt scratched. Wow. That, and is it true? Did you find out? He is, he is sadly passed. Although there he is. Oh, it's a beautiful tattoo. Oh, okay. hello. Um, Alexander. He was a little touched. He, he had been suffered some head trauma as a kitten. So I think that might've been the most important thing he had to say to me. Mm-hmm. And it was true. He I really mean, did like to have his butt scratched. That's like, speak your truth, Alexander. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, do you have any messages from your animals or other kinds of questions you want to ask? There is IR. So I have a sci-fi technical question and then I have an IR, like a a more deeper political question. The sci-fi question is one of the words that was fascinating reading throughout this was the word decanted in terms of how people are created. And I guess the question I had was that clearly one of the elements of this book is that it's a corporate planet that's being terraformed. And among the things that are being created are the people who are, you know, I guess, genetically designed to actually tend to the planet. And it, literally, you see uh-huh. evolution from Homo archaeus to, to Homo sapiens and so on and so forth. The question I kept having reading this was, is this how everyone, all humans are born in this, you know, galaxy in this thing? Is Are they all decanted or is this just unique to, to Sasky or, and our corporate world? I was imagining that pretty much everybody decanted. is de- decanted. That most, I mean... The way that they're creating all of these people is through genetic engineering. But again, I mean, it's a big, it's a big galaxy. So you could imagine, you know, if people are obsessed with artisanal Pleistocene bodies that they might sometimes want to try being pregnant. So yeah. There's also a school of feminist thought that posits that we're not going to be truly equal until it's possible to free us from biological determination to have kids, which is what I thought about all the that's what I absolutely believe I mean I think that you know we have to we have to equalize it you know it has to be that you know birthing is something that we all do equally and um so I I think in a world that's as post-human as this one I'm sure they've had revolutions and counter-revolutions over that question and have like relitigated it in a billion ways we can't even imagine, you know, because once you don't have to have a class of people who get pregnant, then a whole other set of political questions come up. Like who gets to be pregnant? Like, what does it mean to be pregnant? Does it change your gender if you're pregnant? What is gender? We don't even know anymore. You know, that kind <laughs> who, of stuff. Like, gets, it's just going to get weirder and or weirder. Or who chooses to be a parent and why do they choose to be a parent? Like that was the thing that, that struck me as fascinating is that it's a really, ra- you know, what you're proposing is a really radical revolution and not just childbirth, but parenting in the sense of, because the act of parenting is extremely different in this world where someone is born, where they're already in some ways, you know, fully adult sized. And it's just a question of how do you, you know, welcome them into the world. So that was- I love a world with no children personally, but- I I really feel like (laughs) that to me, that was super important. That was a big part of the decanting narrative Mm -hmm. for me is that this is a world where they have abolished the tyranny of childhood. <laughs> and you're never you're never in a state of being so vulnerable that you can be trapped in a tiny little totalitarian domestic space. And that's something I've dealt with in a lot of my fiction is the, the question of 
the horror of, of nuclear families. <laughs> and, and so this is, yeah, this is a way around that where it's like, we're actually parenting and being a child are consensual right. and you, you are in a bargain mm-hmm. again. Um, and you can't get fucked up. That is my, my argument. Yeah. <laughs> or at least no you one can't can fuck you up. You can't be fucked up in that way. I mean, okay. certainly, you true, know, true, you can true. be, there's true. many, many characters who are abused and, and there's trauma. Made, made vulnerable by the state or made vulnerable by the corporation that owns them. But you can't be fucked up in that unique, special way of the mommy, daddy, baby situation. So this leads us to the the deeper sort of politics of the book. And the thing that I thought was fascinating was, first of all, you actually create this world where really the, the sort of most powerful political actors are the corporations. And really, it's this sort of nasty internecine corporate warfare going on between, is it Ronnie and Solyndra? Am I, am I, yeah, yeah the two I did guys. love that. That was wonderful. And like, it, it was, I'd say as a political scientist, it was like, yes, I approve of the slightly less bad person being willing for just pure vengeance sake to screw over the bad person. That was totally believable. Yeah. The other thing that I like that you did, and I, I, I really want to commend you on this, is that when you did talk about like how the ERT engages in decision-making and how you know the attempt to have democracy or, or sort of consensual decision-making elsewhere, you made it very clear this is not an easy thing to do, that this is incredibly time-consuming. And indeed, you even have the characters complaining and bitching and moaning about the fact that this is like taking yeah. freaking forever and so forth. And it's like, good, because that's how it's supposed to work. I, I, I just wanted to say, <laughs> yeah. you, you passed the political science test of not everyone's totally going to agree <laughs> and have a consensus immediately on this. Yeah, I was curious, where did you have the idea? Like, I was fascinated, like you have this, the decision rule in the ERT is, you know, they talk, there's a majority, there's a minority, the majority wins, but the minority gets to impose one concession on the majority. I was just sort of curious what your inspiration for that was. You know, actually it was, my inspiration was from a lot of conversations I've had with Malka Older, who wrote uh, a series that starts with the book Infomocracy. And she's uh, done a lot of humanitarian aid work. She's a political scientist, but also a sci-fi writer. And I, I've talked to her a number of times about democracy. And one of the things that she always points out is, you know, we can change it anytime. Like you can have democracy that looks all different ways. There's different ways to mm-hmm. vote. You know, this is not, there's not just one, we think of there being only one way, but in fact, the field is yeah. open. Um, and she loves to invent new kinds of democracy and think about all of the vulnerabilities in those new types of democracy. And so I was like, you know, that's true. And if you were trying to have a more um, egalitarian or more consensual form of voting, uh, maybe one way you would do it is to make sure that the minority always feels like they have a stake in the decision, even if they lose. And so that was, it was really a mechanic that I was just trying to imagine like, well, if I were in the minority, which I generally always am <laughs> in, in our democratic debate, like what would make me feel like I still had a stake in what had happened? It would be if like, yeah, I get, I still get something and I'm still, my position is still acknowledged in the final decision. And so I just, it was just something I thought was, it's kind of utopian, even though of course, as you say in the book, it's incredibly annoying. And the people who are demanding the minority concession are just, all they want to do well, is Well, what you do a and... good job of is demonstrating that it's simultaneously tedious, but you do sort of avoid the, for lack of a better of putting it, polarization that might occur in actual democracy. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, maybe that was the sort of utopian element of it. But, you know, you can't do everything in, in these sort of books. No, you yeah. can't, especially because, like, I, it was like, I already have 
I feel like this book has a lot of scenes that are people in meetings. Yes. It does. <laughs> no, you have a Four lot people. of committee I'm meetings. Like, There's a lot of meetings. <laughs> I, I, I was going to ask you at one point, like, did you just have a dream? You were like, urban planning, hot sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and moose. Those are the three things. <laughs> and meetings. Yeah. You like meetings. lots and lots of meetings. Well, cooperative living is basically nothing but meetings. I, kept, I mean, if yeah. you think about I kept thinking it, of, like when, even when we cooperate, if we are cooperatively living together as partners, it's a lot of meetings. We don't call them meetings necessarily, but like, that's what we're doing. I, I did right? keep thinking if you filmed like a, a trailer for the book, it'd be like, if you like urban planning, committee meetings, <laughs> hot moose and hot sex, we have the book we, for I you. I want to talk about the sex go ahead, really, go really ahead, badly, go, but, no, no, go ahead. but but yeah. first I want to talk about yeah. meetings. Because um, <laughs> I just have to throw in, um, I don't know if you know this, uh, Annalie, but um, Aclox Anonymous is loosely is anarchic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, Bill Wilson actually was influenced by Russian anarchists in setting up the organization, and that makes a lot of sense. And it's it is that, and it's one of those frustrating. And yet, alcoholics like me are total fucking control freaks. Mm-hmm. So it's infuriating. But we we do things by consensus, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons, like the big book hasn't changed in seventy years. Yeah. <laughs> like, so so Alcoholics Anonymous is kind of the great bargain. Like it's about bringing everyone to the table and sharing. It is. And the position is like, you can vote. And I've, so if you ever really want to know what AA is really like, don't go to an AA meeting, go to an AA business meeting, which are generally held like once a month after the regular meeting. Um, and then you'll get to see alcoholics behaving like alcoholics and not in recovery because we just bitch at each other and like it's and get really petty. The, um, I remember the first time I went to a business meeting really in sobriety, I went with my sponsor and I was so shocked because I was like all these people who had such wisdom in the meeting and were so like spiritual, <laughs> like in this business meeting, we're like, no, we should use the short form of the traditions. <laughs> no, we should use the long form of the traditions. But anyway, we, you can vote on stuff, but you can't decide things by a vote. Uh-huh. Like it is. That's why the book hasn't changed in 70 years. When yeah. things change, I will say they're fully embraced. But anyway, sex. Yeah, let's get, let's get to the good stuff. Come on. <laughs> what I did there. Embraces. There's some hot and non-traditional sex mm-hmm. in this book. Um, Dan, do you want to... I, I, maybe I'll make Dan talk about the sex first, but I, I do have questions. Dan, did you have a question or did you just want to say that you liked it? Do you have a question or a comment about the sex? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dan, as a white guy, as a white guy here... Do you have a question or really more of a comment? <laughs> that was actually a good, just like giving the finger is a great that's comment. A, I actually, that's one of my very favorite comments to give. No, the, the, the one thing that I was legit confused by was the robot sex. Like how, so that I was like, how does that come about? We don't get to see yeah. it. Annalise. You, you described it. I know. Is I'm there, sorry is, about there that. Cuts, is there, is there like the X-rated version? Of the book where we get to see the so, R Terraformers after dark. R for yeah. R, yeah. No, I love the R for R uh, bar. Yes, that, that was great. Um, that. So in in my first novel, Autonomous, there is a lot of robot sex. So if you would like some robot sex, you can go there. I'm sure it's <laughs> our listeners will be glad to hear that. Robots. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, there's some very hot gay robot sex. I, I call it gay, but the robot and the human in, in Autonomous would not call themselves. What gay, would make so. it gay? That's a question, right? Like. 
I don't know. Basically, it's like a Tom of Finland kind of robot. Oh, 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 oh. It's like a big, burly. Oh, like, bear robot. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah. It's like right. a big, like, mech, military Got mech. It. So. So, Dan, are you asking for a description? Because it would be a very So you need to know more about robot sex. <laughs> I don't need to know <laughs> about the mechanics. See? It was more the idea that robots have sexual desires. That was the part that I was like. Yeah, why would you? What, what in the process of creating yeah. robot humans? Mm-hmm. What part is the, who gets to make the decision that they're going to have sexual desires? And it's a good question. Come? So Terraformers is actually set in the same universe as Autonomous, oh, just, you okay. know, 60,000 years later, 55,000 years know. later. So, and I've written a couple of short stories that are also set in the same vast timeline, mm-hmm. one of which published on Tor.com and it's called Old Media. And it's actually explicitly about I should explicitly, ha ha ha. It's explicitly <laughs> about how robots decide whether they want to be sexual. And it's about a human and a robot who um, have been through a lot together. They really love each other. They're roommates. And the human is like, well, why don't we, you know, let's have some sex. You know, it's a, this robot is, it looks like a human, you know, she's got all the stuff that she might need to have basically human sex. And she's just not interested. She's asexual. She just doesn't, feel like it's something that she wants to do. And she has other robot friends who are interested in sex. And when they are, they can download various programs to explore desire and can implant themselves with different kinds of desires if they want to. And so it's radically consensual. Like you have to consent to even have sexual desire Mm -hmm. if you're a robot who's autonomous. If you're not a robot who's autonomous, if you're an indentured robot, you don't have any control over what programs are put into your brain. Hmm. So humans, a, a nasty human owner could do all kinds of terrible yeah. stuff to your, to your desires. And that's one of the big questions in autonomous is like, where does desire come from? Does this robot really feel what the robot is really feeling? You know, whatever the robot's trying to figure and, out how, how it feels. And my question, why would you want desire? But it's been a while as I've mentioned before. So, you know, I, I mean, so we don't get into this question at all in the terraformers. In the right. terraformers, it's just sort of understood. It's a given. Like this civilization has existed for so many thousands of years that I'm sure they have all kinds of. We get some hints that they have all different kinds of codes and kinks and ideas about what they might want. <laughs> so I think that you know, if you're a, a creature who a living creature who lives for h- hundreds of years, potentially thousands of years, like a lot of these characters do you'd be trying a lot of different stuff. And so you might try desiring food, you might try desiring sex, you might try desiring all kinds of stuff, you know, like, think of all the weird things that give us pleasure as people. Like, yesterday, I put on an outfit that was like, all matching colors. And I just like had this like, rush of like pleasure. I was like, Ooh, I I match. (laughs) It was just like, my shirt is green and my socks are green. It just felt really good, which is obviously a very kind of OCD obscure form of pleasure. But I'm just saying, like, lots of things make us excited. There's lots of things we desire to do. Sex is just one of them. And, you know, these are robots who are kind of kinky. So they just think that's fun. I, I can't. I mean, people who are into kink, often really love like rules and systems and you know plans elaborate desire maps and plans like oftentimes if you're having like you know a kinky encounter you might actually make a list of like these are all the things I like these are the things I don't like here's my safe word you know blah 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 
And I feel like that's very robot compatible. Like, I feel like if you had a robot kink scene, it, it would be very elaborate and delightful. And, and they do have a hanky code, but it's more of a, it's more of a, it's a frequency radio right? yeah, frequency yeah, yeah, code. I, I, yeah. I did chuckle with that scene. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of non-sexual desire and love, I was a little disappointed that Moose and Moose the cat, I should be clear, mm-hmm. and the train don't appear to have sex, which is fine. Not every they loving do. relationship. There was sort of a fade to black. There was a fade to black moment. It and was then, a very, and they wake up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they I guess they're I was like, just so used to the hotness. Like I thought I, I was gonna oh, get here's like it was just it was funny because I was like, okay, so when they have sex, like Moose is a cat and Scrub Jay the train ports their consciousness into a kind of a cat-sized right. robot. So they're roughly the same size. Um, and it's not, you don't have to imagine like, how does a cat hump a train? <laughs> I mean, you could also imagine that like, and actually, oh, I did, I, earlier, of all kinds, I did in Emily. fact kept thinking that like, before they actually hooked up. I was like, are they going to hook up? Yeah. And how I is was, that going to happen? That was actually <laughs> a question that I had. Cause I was, you know, before I wrote how they actually finally got together, I was like, well, maybe like the train could just like, angle themselves to always be in the sun and like the cat could kind of roll around in the sun and I was like that's not a, I mean sure but that's not very hot I mean it's, it's like not hot but I could imagine if you could had control over where your genitals or where not even you don't even have to call them genitals you would just call it like an erogenous zone right like it would exactly. just be like the place where you experience sexual pleasure sure like, it could be anywhere on a train. It the train could turn into where it is on a train. Yeah, and the train could vibrate, so the train could turn into a vibrator. So I thought about all those things, believe me. And then I was like, you know, I'm just gonna let these guys like I'm gonna they're falling in love and then, you know, they sort of we see them like kind of rolling around yeah. together and then it's yeah, like fade to black. And so, you know, I just I didn't feel like I knew how to describe a cat and a robot having sex without it being kind of weird. I, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I know how far you stay away from weird. I, I was like, like, I know how I much you hate weird. I kept thinking about Gene M. All's like clan of the cave bear books that are like full of animals having sex and how weird that made me feel when I was a teenager reading them. And I was like, I don't know. I just, no, I've, I'm going to got some news for teenagers who may read terraformers or autonomous for that matter. <laughs> I do like Annalise world where like Ascension train, totally on board with that Ascension train having sex. Whoa. I don't want to, no, I don't need to, I don't need to go into that. I just, uh, I want the train. I, I really nice. want the train to get laid. I just, <laughs> I just don't know how to describe it in a way that I don't know. I just didn't know, feel like I was. But good for Scrub Joy for like being a, able to. Well, let's think. talk about the hotness of the sex yeah. scenes then, because that is a good, interesting question. Because the sex scenes are non-traditional. What would the? I don't. I want. I don't want to use problematic language. I mean, I'd say they're they're not typical. Yeah. Sure, typical. they're not not typical or traditional. I mean, whatever is traditional sex scene might be. Right, it's hard to say. <laughs> they they involve unusual parts. Mm-hmm. Some rare parts. There's an intersex person, I believe, although the terminology used is stamen and petals. Right? Oh yeah. They're, they're just like, they're a non-binary kind of, okay. they're non-binary and they're a, they're not homo sapiens. So they're, 
they're like this knockoff t- brand of Homo sapiens. Right. I was just thinking has like this genital it, configuration. You know, if you could have a choice, why not go with whatever the most things possible? Yes. Like- so they have a stamen, <laughs> which is kind of like, you know, it's like a large clitoris that can become erect. And they also have kind of yeah. this, this very flowery looking vulva. And I think they have like nipples in a bunch of different places too. Yeah, one of them has six, um, six, six, six yes. nipples. I caught that. Yeah, so I love, I love how Anna and I caught that. Ben and I are like, it's we, six, Anna. <laughs> we've got nipples. detailed notes um, about this. Yes. So you know, you can kind of tell like who grew up with heavy metal magazine. <laughs> right? Could it be Anna Lee? So like, there's a lot of like, I feel like there's a lot of ideas about futuristic space genitals that I got from 70s and 80s science fiction that just never left. And so I wanted, yeah, like as a person who is non-binary, I wanted to have hot non-binary sex in the book. And I wanted to have a character whose body configuration is recognizable, but also different enough to be intriguing, but also, like I said, recognizable enough that we can still kind of get why it's sexy. Mm -hmm. And I also one of the things that was really important to me about Sulphur's character and all of the homo archaea who are not homo sapiens have these genitals and stuff. At a certain point, they meet one of the bad guys, Solyndra, who's one of the corporate executives. And she does this horrible microaggression oh, yeah. where she makes mm. all these assumptions about the fact that because they don't have gender, they don't have sexual desire and like just makes all these like casually she's casually uh cruel no she seems repulsed um, in that scene like i mean you it radiates from the page that she's like oh i i barely want to tolerate you yeah and it's and it's partly because these are people who were built to be servants you know and were built to be enslaved and it's partly that she just is like ugh, your gender is disgusting which is very relatable for anyone who's like been in a non-binary or trans body for the last few years. So it, it was like, I wanted to have, I wanted to show that side of it, but then I also wanted sulfur to have like lots of joyous sex too. And to like, you know, take pleasure in this body that is actually a perfectly great body and useful for all kinds of things um, (laughs) and all kinds of pleasures. And so I think a lot of the sex is really, like queer joy sex and, you know, celebrating bodies that don't conform to the norm of, of homo sapiens. But the cat train just a bridge too far. You know, I, it's funny because I actually like, I talked to a friend of mine who's a furry about this and I was like, (laughs) I was like, I'm really worried that I'm going to offend furries. Cause like, I just like, that was part of my, concern because I'm like there is a whole community out there that specializes in sexy animal sex you know Mm. what I mean and like I have like I I, I'm not part of that community and I don't want to like just come in and like be a writing about bull sex in a china shop or whatever you know what I mean like I don't want to be like did you have that prepped that's good I didn't I just came I'm like that was my amazing pun of the day so I I just I want and I also feel like the other thing is that Scrub J, the train, is like the child kind of of the characters who we've seen having wild sex in the previous section of the book. And I also had this kind of feeling of like, let's just let Scrub J have sex off screen because like Scrub okay. J is kind of yeah. the baby. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I didn't but, imagine that we'd talk about this this much. So I'm I know sorry. we delved. We delved a lot. I'm Yeah, let's let's wrap yeah. it up. Anyway, Scrub J, the, the point is. 
Scrub Jay and Moose the Cat do get laid. They're having great sex off screen. Trust me. Please go write the fanfic about it. They do live happily ever after. And again, I did not expect to discuss this this much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I actually have a question. I have a capitalism question, which is when I see societies that are kind of post-scarcity, like there does seem to be like, you can make a lot of stuff in this world, right? And also there's these thousand year old long, thousand year old people. How does like inherited wealth, like where does the money come from? Like who are the rich people in this universe and how did they get to be that? Is it just like compound interest? Like, do you, I, I don't it's know a good question. a backstory that you even thought about. <laughs> I actually, I mean, I did think a lot, the, the, where, where capitalism came in was yeah. really thinking about the act of terraforming. And, you know, there's a lot of science fiction about terraforming that kind of takes for granted that, oh, of course you would just do it. Why wouldn't you do terraforming? And I was like, who's paying for the terraforming? Like, that's a really expensive and it's like, it's a sunk cost. Like you, you terraform something for a really, really long time before you can sell it. And that's one of the big issues that comes up in the terraformers is that this company is doing this like multi-thousand year investment in something that has to pay off. Like they have to be able to to sell that real estate or they're screwed. And so I was thinking a lot about that, about how colonization in this uh, galaxy is being funded through a kind of futuristic version of corporate capitalism. But we also see that there's governments and there is Mm -hmm. this kind of pseudo UN slash Federation of Planets organization. League of Planets, yeah. The League of Planets, yes. They're, you know, like I said, they're this this kind of notional mm-hmm. body that uh, is um, a collection of all of the different governments in this civilization. So in terms of like, how do people inherit wealth? I was imagining it being pretty much the way it is now, which means that the division between haves and have-nots is pretty extreme. It just, it just exists. Okay. And that was it. that was seriously my question was just like, yeah. is it just like it's still the Gates family is like still running shit? I don't know. Oh, you know I mean, I guess he's given away a lot. Oh. I, I mean, maybe not the Gates family, but certainly right. there are we meet rich families, we and we see that most of the characters in the in the story are servants or slaves. So we know that there's that a lot of people, probably most people are are some kind of servant or serf. I mean, talk about concentrated wealth. If it's already, I mean, if you extrapolate from now to tens of thousands of years from now, the it's not even the 99%, right? It's like some. And you have to assume, like what I assume is, I mean, there's been many, many social disruptions and political revolutions over this time. And so there's probably places like this planet that are very capitalist. It's owned by a corporation. There's probably other places that have social democracy. You know, it's very, it's a big, it's a big galaxy. So, you know, the story is set in a really dystopian part of a much bigger civilization. And where there's gentrification and sort of on this yeah. capitalism on the smaller scale. I just get curious about the very, like the, the latest possible stage of capitalism, I guess. But like, it seems like it's, you know, seems like it's pretty it durable, unfortunately. Yeah. Like we keep on thinking it's li- late stage, but it keeps on being later. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how I feel about it. And I've had people push back on me and say like, well, obviously we wouldn't have capitalism anymore. And I'm like, you know, 
human social institutions like have a way of sticking around. Like we've had religion for, I don't know, 10,000 years as far as we know, and probably further, right? We just only have records going back 10,000 years. And I don't see why other social institutions that are all about forming connections to each other wouldn't also last, you know? So I I think it's foolish to think we're going to totally be rid of capitalism. Dan? I think we're kind of winding up. Do you have anything else? I don't. Uh, the the one last thing I would think this is a small one is that so you have you have the character of Kim after Kim Stanley Robinson, and I don't know if you meant for this to be, but there was this one sentence where she, he or she, I wasn't sure. She, she, she I think I assume she's a she, she yeah, yeah, or yeah, they. They say Verdants won't kill anything they can use, and we are extremely useful. And as someone who had seen Schindler's List, I was like, did you intend for that to be a reference to the Holocaust or no? <laughs> I didn't intend it for it, but I am glad that it yeah, resonates that was what, because that's that's the that, vibe. Okay, that was okay. So that that's fair. Yeah, but that was the thing. Yeah, I can't think of a better note to end on, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. The Holocaust yep, vibes. There we go. <laughs> well, do you have anything, Annalie? Like, have we uh, anything you want to add to our very extensive discussion about robot sex or is there something that we didn't get Is there going to be a sequel involving Midnight and, and Whistle? There is. Dan, I, you I write the planning, fan fiction. I am planning a short story yes. about Yes! A, yes! yes. It, it will be related to Midnight Good. and Whistle. Excellent. So it's, it's, yeah, I think once I write that story, I will oh, let you know. You. And I think all I would say is that I think it's really interesting that people who've read The Terraformers have either come away thinking that it's a crazy utopia or a crazy dystopia. (laughs) And I really prefer to write things that are both. You know, I think that when you're talking about civilization, you always have pockets of horror and pockets of hope. And that's really what's going on here. So if you're if you're getting dystopian vibes and utopian vibes, that's why we already live in the dystopia. It's just unevenly distributed. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I was just thinking about that the other day. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yeah, I thanks, absolutely you guys for thank you. Great yeah, It was a lot of fun. Oh, thank thanks. You. Yeah, it was great to see you again after 30 years. <laughs> Maybe we should not make it another 30. Yeah, seems like a good idea. <laughs> just, a, just a thought. We want to thank Annalie again for joining us. That was they were incredibly great. fun. They were so they great. They were great. Yes. And again... Perhaps someone who does not live in the same house (laughs) next time. Yes, yes. And we're going to be coming back to you with Jupiter Ascending and the San Junipero. San Junipero episode. San Junipero. Yes. I work with words for a living. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but they're on the written page. That's totally different. Until next time. Keep this channel open for more.